We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I'm going to talk more about the biblical definition of Jesus and why understanding that definition and getting it right is the only solution to the divisive rhetoric that we're suffering right now in our nation. The only solution to CRT, BLM, social justice warriors is getting the definition of Christmas right. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Welcome to today's Rebellion. All right, I'm going to finish up this week with a couple more Christmas episodes. And today's show is going to play off yesterday's, where I spent a lot of time discussing the definition of Christ, the Christ of Christmas, and the definition of who he is, of what the Bible says about him, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what Isaiah said about the Messiah, what Daniel said about the Son of Man, the Messiah, about what the Apostle John said about the Messiah, about Jesus, the Word made flesh and dwelling among us. These are important issues, not just for the church. Some of you may be tempted to turn off uh, the show right now and go do something else because you're not interested in the discussion of Christian orthodoxy. And I would suggest you need to be. Because even if you haven't embraced that as your way of life and your way of faith, you've benefited from the accurate definition of the Christ of Christmas because it has made a difference in the way you live in our culture and in our country. You see, we have based our nation off of the self-evident truths that are endowed to us by our Creator. And that Creator in the minds of our founding fathers, was the biblical God. And that biblical God, as I discussed yesterday, is revealed to us in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh and dwelling among us, the incarnation of God. The Word made flesh and dwelling among us. Do you get that? The Word is the eternal Word, the Logos, the truth that has dwelt eternally in the person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. That was made incarnate on Christmas Day so that we could see Him, hear Him, touch Him, follow Him, and believe in Him. That's why in one of the earlier shows a couple episodes ago, I titled it, Believe in Something. Believe in Christ. Believe in Christmas. Well, today, I want to discuss this issue a little bit further. Because the only solution, in my mind, is for our culture to recognize that the ideas of Christmas have hurled across the centuries, again, Thomas Cahill, and we have benefited from them. But if we 
don't get the definition of the Christ of Christmas right, we're going to suffer a lot of dysfunction as a culture. And that's why you see the arguments, the venom, the vitriol, the vengeance, the vice of critical race theory, the reverse racism of actually advocating for segregation now because we don't like your kind. You can't be on the playground with us. You can't have the same student union as we have. We're going to separate ourselves from you because you suffer from too much whiteness. It's the exact same stuff that was being said in the 50s, only the opposite way. We don't want blacks among us. We don't consider blacks to be fully human. But today you hear people like Nick Cannon saying that those who lack the melanin, the melanin that he enjoys, are not fully human. They're less human than those that are fully melanized, if you will. This is very dangerous language. It's a very dangerous worldview. And it causes people to get very angry with those that they don't see as being on the same status as them. That's what critical race theory is grounded in. Us against them. You against me. Blacks against whites. Queer against straight. It's class conflict. It's textbook Marxism. And Marxism is the antithesis of the gospel. That's the nature of socialism. It's not just critical race theory or critical theory. It's grounded in socialism and Marxism. Because the very premise of socialism, as I've said in previous shows, is to teach people and, in, and to enable people to covet, which is one of the sins in the Ten Commandments we're told to avoid. But yet, we have churches today enabling and celebrating the very sin of coveting, because the definition of coveting is looking at your neighbor and saying, he's got something, I want it, I deserve it, I am going to take it from him. That's coveting. Doesn't that sound like socialism to you? Redistribution, taking from the rich and giving to the poor? Taking, 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 because he has it and I don't. That's socialism. That's socialism at its basic core. Likewise, Marxism. Conflict and covetousness. That's the context of communism and socialism. The social justice warriors and social emotional learning, same thing. In fact, let me give you a little tip here. Anytime you hear the word social today, run. Run the other direction because the word has been flipped upside down and manipulated and co-opted and corrupted to such an extent that basically when people say anything about social this or social that, they're arguing for the collective rather than personal responsibility. For culture and government being the arbiter of justice rather than God and the individual in alignment with God and obedience to his principles. It's a very different worldview. So you see that in social-emotional learning, for example. They're socializing your emotional development. In other words, society will define what's emotionally healthy and what isn't, rather than, rather than 
biblical values, biblical principles, the eternal truths that are given to us by God and entrusted to us and protected by the church and by scripture. scripture excuse me. So I'm going to play uh, about a minute and 16 seconds of a sermon that was delivered by a black pastor that is spot on. I want you to listen to it. It's excellent. This guy nails it. And then after after he delivers his little sermonette, I'm going to discuss with you more about the definition of Christ and why it matters for our culture. Let's take a break. When we get back, we'll do those things. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. I said before the break that I'd like to play this snippet of a sermon of a black pastor who, in my view, nails it with regard to the reason that the right definition of the Christ of Christmas is necessary for us to have a healthy culture, a healthy society, a healthy nation, and to live together with some measure of sanity as people. Whether or not we embrace Christianity as a born-again proposition is not really the end of the story. Oh, I'm not arguing that we should set that aside. Obviously, I think that is critical. I'm not diminishing that. Don't hear me say that at all. But what I am saying is that even those who don't embrace Christianity as a born-again proposition benefit from the crumbs that are dropped from the table of the Christian worldview, of the body of Christ coming together in communion. Everybody else around us that may not share in that communion of faith, benefits from the dinner, benefits from the bread, benefits from the healing nature that Christ brings into the world and saving us from our sins. As I said in the previous program, saving us not only of our own sins, but saving us from the sins of others who would be oh so eager, oh so eager to enslave us, to use us, to... uh, Uh, ignore us, and to essentially even kill us if there wasn't that mitigating influence of Christ, of Christmas. I want you to listen to this sermon. Again, it's only a minute and 16 seconds of this man's longer sermon, but this is very, very good. Listen to what the message was. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. That's what man needs. He needs a savior. He doesn't need another government program. He needs a savior. He doesn't need counseling. He needs to be saved. The problem with men is sin. He needs a savior. And the scripture says that savior is Christ the Lord. Don't get confused. The savior is Christ the Lord. And the angels declared peace. Wait a minute. We have the Pax Romanus. We have peace. No, just because you've got military peace doesn't mean you got peace in your soul. We need peace. We are the most prosperous nation in the world. Even people that we consider to be poor, according to the world standards, they are not poor. We possess so many things, but have no peace in our hearts. And the problem that we have with each other is a problem that we have with God. The reason why folks don't get along with you They don't get along with God. 
James says the war starts right here. And we like to blame other people, but the war starts in our own heart with God. So to that I say, amen. The man nailed it. This pastor nailed it. We don't need more government programs, he said. We don't need more counseling, he preached. And he's right. That is not the solution to your community's needs. That's not the solution to the conflict and the division that we see in our culture right now. Government programs won't solve this problem. Social emotional learning is not going to do anything to cure this disease. In fact, it's going to perpetuate it. It's akin to what many of us suspect with regard to the COVID vaccine. Are we suffering a pandemic of the vaccinated? Are the vaccines actually perpetuating the problem rather than solving it? It seems to be so when you look at the news and you see 80% of the COVID variants that are being contracted by various different folks across various different communities are coming from those that have been vaccinated and have one or two boosters. So what's that all about? We don't need more human solutions. And maybe this, this, this situation of the COVID pandemic is analogous. Maybe it's an example of what is a deeper spiritual truth here. We don't need human solutions, government solutions, counseling, social-emotional learning, critical race theory, critical theory. We don't need Black Lives Matter. We don't need more alphabet soup solutions of LGBTQIA. We don't need social justice. That's not what we need. We don't need society to define justice. We need to accept the definition of justice that's given to us through the incarnate word of God that was made flesh and dwells among us. He was in the beginning and he created all things. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is omnipotent. Jesus is omniscient. Jesus is divine. Daniel said it, Isaiah said it, John said it, Paul said it, Peter said it, Jude said it. The list goes on and on. The early church fathers reaffirmed it because they were taught these things. Even though they had not seen Jesus personally, they were taught by those who had. And the church history is important because it is that church history that is grounded in Scripture. It's that church history that gave us Scripture through the protection and revelation of God himself. So when you hear people like, oh, uh, I was just reading an article about Bart Ehrman. I've talked about him before on this show. Ehrman is a theology professor at the University of North Carolina. He used to be an evangelical. He's one of these ex-evangelicals, this, one of these people that used to claim to be in the conservative evangelical camp. And then he had an epiphany and he fell away. And now he has spent his, his entire career, he's dedicated all of his scholarship to refuting the historicity, historicity excuse me, the historical veracity of the biblical message of the gospel, the good news of Christ, of Christmas, Christ's mass. 
Bart Ehrman, for example, says that Jesus never claimed to be God. He, he says this, the earliest Christians thought that Jesus was taken up to heaven and made a divine being and that he was coming back. So far, so good, he says, but during his lifetime, Jesus himself didn't call himself God and didn't consider himself God. And none of his disciples had any inkling at all that he was God. This is what Bart Ehrman says. And Bart Ehrman is emblematic of a lot of people that live right down your street. Maybe even people that attend your church. Maybe he's emblematic of some of you and the questions that you have. And I'm glad you're being honest about it. I'm not, I'm not trying to embarrass you if you've asked these questions. You're not the first one. You won't be the last. But, you know, Ehrman is not paying attention to what Scripture itself says. I shared with you yesterday what Daniel said and Isaiah said and the Apostle John said, once again from John, first chapter, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, he was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made that were made, and without him was not, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of all the world. It seems pretty clear, right? The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of all men. Well, you say that was John. Maybe, maybe he had an axe to grind. Maybe he had an agenda. Well, let's go to the statements of the apostles Paul and Peter. What did they say? What did they give their lives for? I mean, Paul was beheaded, and any honest historian doesn't dispute that. Paul gave his head, literally gave his head for this message. Why would he do that if he thought, or if he knew, that it was a lie? And likewise, Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord, his God. Peter gave his life. So let's look at what they said. Well, here's what Paul said to Titus when he wrote to him. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Didn't he just call Jesus God? How could Bart Ehrman suggest that the early followers didn't think this? He's ignoring the very text. And then he says this, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he says that to the church of Philippi. And then he says this, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. All of his fullness dwell in Jesus. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He says that to the church of Colossia. So Paul is repeating this over and over again. To Titus, to the church of Philippi, to the church of Colossia. Paul then doubles down in case, I guess, I guess in case his readers missed it. And he says this, he says this, that Jesus is the deity in bodily form. So what did Peter say? Well, Peter is the father of the church. I mean, Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He, Peter says, that he, as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours 
by the righteousness of our, listen for it, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did Peter just say exactly what Paul said? And that is that God is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is God. I mean, you can go on and on and on to refute what Bart Ehrman and those in your church or liberal pastor or progressive Christians or secularists or atheists who want to say, well, you guys are just making this up. Jesus never claimed that for himself, and his own apostles didn't even think that he was God. They just thought he was a good man with interesting teaching, and yeah, they were willing to give their lives for that teaching, but this wasn't even part of the original gospel, the good news of Christ. Really? Let's go to what Paul said again to the church of the Colossians, the church of Colossia. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Hmm. The firstborn over all creation. Hmm. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. That's Jesus. That's the Christ of Christmas, folks. And for him. He is before all things and in all things and holds all things together. Can you get much clearer than that, Bart Ehrman? My goodness. Jesus is the creator. That's what Paul's saying. He made everything. That's what John and Paul have said. And everything was made for him. Again, John and Paul and Peter have said this. Hearkening back to Daniel, the son of man, who is who is equivalent and the representation of God, the deity, the ancient of days. It harkens back to the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1.1, the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Take that verse, the very first statement in the Bible, and lay it over the top of Colossians 1.15 through 26. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. In him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Sound familiar? Jesus created everything exclusively. God created everything exclusively. Seems pretty clear. Let's take another one. Uh, Paul penned this in Philippians 2, the second chapter of Philippians. He wrote this about Jesus and his resurrection and ascending to the Father after his death. Therefore God exalted him to the highest places and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord of reference to God. Now, you may say, yeah, but we're talking about God the Father. Is that a different God? No, that's why we need to understand the Trinity. It, you can't get your mind wrapped around it. That's why it, this is the, the mystery of God in the Trinity. The relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. Three, 
this, this is something that we just, I mean, you can try to understand it. Uh, you can, water uh, is, you've got liquid, you've got vapor, and you've got um, solid ice. Or an egg, you've got a yolk, you've got the shell, and you've got the white. Or some people will say the uh, a man can be a father, he can be um, he can be a son, and he can also be a husband. Um, none of these really do justice because all of them fall into what's called modalism, which is a heresy where we think that we can divide the Trinity into one God just wearing different hats, if you will, at different times functioning in different modes. But that's not the Trinity. There actually is this interwoven nature of God in the Trinity that we don't understand. And some people have said, well, if you could understand God, then he's not a big enough God worth your worship. And I think that's where we need to rest on this one. The Old Testament passage written some 800 years earlier by Isaiah that I've, I've talked to you about already talks about Yahweh, and Yahweh is almost always translated Lord. Uh, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Before me, every knee will bow, and every tongue will swear, confess, and they will say of me, in the Lord alone, in the Lord alone, our deliverance and strength. Now, again, the overlapping, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, the overlapping of these definitions. Philippians 2, verses 5 and 6, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God. Again, the gospel of Mark. Mark comes in. Again, we could spend shows on this. For whoever, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man, the Messiah, the representation of the deity, the Father of lights, the Creator, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here's the point. The pastor, the black pastor, and his sermon, a minute and 16 seconds, nails it. He came to save his people from their sins. That means you're responsible for the mess you're in, not society, not someone else. It's your fault, your sin, and it's only your confession, your repentance, your revival, your reformation, your returning to the God you see in the Bible rather than the one you're worshiping in the mirror. That's the only solution to the mess we're in. And all of these other social programs, government programs, and educational heresies, fallacies, this pablum just perpetuates the problem. We're suffering a pandemic of the vaccinated, if you will. We need to accept the responsibility for ourselves. And that's where our natural immunity to our sin can be boosted by our Creator Himself. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.